The writers are not getting like full transparency here. They're getting a certain level of transparency and they're getting a success metric, which are big deals, but it's not the 100% win. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, September 28th. Today, I'm joined by Matt Bellany to talk about the winners and the losers from the writer's strike, which came to an end earlier this week. Matt looks at how social media influenced the negotiations, what the timing of the agreement means for the fall production schedule, and when the actor's strike, which is still going on, might be resolved. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. The writer's strike is over. The terms of the agreement still need to be voted on by the membership. But writers went back to work this week. And I'm joined today by Matt Bellany, who's been talking about this a lot in the last few days. Too much. Too much. <laughs> Our resident expert on the business of Hollywood. You've been, man, you have been in the weeds on this stuff all summer. I drove by the Sony lot yesterday in Culver City. No strikers, no picketers, no picket line to be crossed. You know, it's funny. I... I noticed that at Fox yesterday, too. And as of yesterday, we're talking Tuesday, the writers were still on strike and sag after the Actors Union is still on strike even today. So maybe they called it early yesterday yeah. just because they knew that that was going to be the final day. Maybe they were all off celebrating at, you know, Busby's or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, like my friends who work in showbiz were texting me, you know, Sunday and Monday that this might have been coming to a close. So maybe they were like, OK, maybe we don't have to take out our clever signs this week. But let's just step back for one second, Matt. I know you've been talking about this a lot, but for the people who don't know, who've been listening to the powers that be and hearing about Ron DeSantis in Ukraine and not the writer's strike, what are the terms of the agreement that they came to? And would you say that one side or the other is a winner and a loser? 
Okay, so there are many terms they came to. I mean, it's hundreds of pages, this new agreement. But other than the usual, you know, increases in minimum wages, uh, increases in domestic and foreign residuals, there were really three topics that everybody was waiting to see where the writers would land. The first was this issue of minimum staffing. And that means for TV shows, the Writers Guild wanted a minimum requirement of writers to be hired for shows. Hmm. A lot of people, including myself, thought that that was not wishful thinking, but that was a, an ask. It was a big stretch hmm. because that did not exist before. And they got it. They got something. They didn't get exactly what they wanted, but mm -hmm. they got a sliding scale of minimum staffing for shows where it's three up to six writers are guaranteed on these shows, depending on the number of episodes. And there's also provisions for what they call development rooms or mini rooms, which are pre-green lights. They get some minimum staffing there. And then the post-green light is where I'm talking about that sliding scale. So that's a big win. The second one is this issue of AI. And this landed about where we thought it would. There's broad protections against the writer's work being used to diminish their role in the process. So they will still get their credits. They will still get paid. There's all sorts of new fees that they're getting uh, on the screenwriting side for scripts. You get a second pass if you're not a highly paid writer, meaning you are automatically paid to do a second draft of the script. And on AI, they kind of punted on the question of whether the studios will be able to use the writer's work that the studios own to train language models. And that's where you input all these scripts, and then the studios will be able to kind of experiment with what comes out. The writers reserve their rights for the next negotiation, and they're just going to kind of punt on this and figure it out down the road. So I guess that's a mm. small win for the studios. And then the third metric is the transparency metric. This was a big ask by the writers. They wanted the streaming services to have to open up their data, show them how many people are watching these shows and movies, and tie a portion of their compensation to a success metric, what they called. And they got something. They got a commitment from the studios where if a show or movie is watched by 20% of a service's subscribers, then that means that they get a additional bonus residual. It's not much. It's, you know, the cost to the studios per year is probably going to be like two to $4 million total on this, but it opens the door. And as we know, in these labor negotiations, a lot of it is about getting jurisdiction, opening the door so that future negotiations can increase the residual prices. And that's what happened back in 1960 when they established residuals in the first place, which are payments for reuse mm -hmm. of a creative person's materials. And now there is this success metric in streaming for bonuses. Wait, so 20% of a platform subscriber base though, that's a lot of people like, and Netflix is obviously the behemoth in that space, but would they have like 230 million subscribers? So if some writer gets really lucky and 50 million people watch their show on Netflix, then they get a bonus. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it may be. I have to go back and look at the arrangement. It may be domestic, the gotcha, number gotcha, gotcha. for that calculus. I have to go back and look. I'm not actually sure. But I asked one of the negotiating committee members, Adam Conover, this question today. Mm -hmm. And he said that they were provided data that showed a lot of series and movies actually get to that threshold. 
on mm. these services? And it's an interesting question because if you're a service like Apple TV Plus, where mm. they have a lot of shows that are very popular for that service, like Morning Show and obviously mm. Ted Lasso, and then some that are, that are just not at all, it's not that hard to envision a hit show getting to that level on Apple TV Plus. Mm-hmm. On Netflix, I don't know, because you could even, you know, a show that we talk about that everyone in your friend group might think is a hit, maybe that <laughs> only is hitting your friend group. And, mm-hmm. you know, of the hundreds of millions of subscribers, it's not making that big of a dent. So it'll be interesting to see the data on this. Now, part of this disclosure requirement is that the guild has to keep this data confidential within the guild. They are Mm -hmm. allowed to release it to the membership in the aggregate. It's sort of unclear what in the aggregate means, but Mm -hmm. it's not like we're going to see all of a sudden a weekly digest of who's watching what on Netflix, other than what Netflix itself chooses to tell us. So the writers are not getting like full transparency here. They're getting a certain level of transparency and they're getting a success metric, which are big deals, but it's not the 100% win. You mentioned Adam Conover, who was on the WGA negotiating committee. I mean, he had a successful career before this, but he gained another measure of sort of social media clout and online fame, as did a lot of people in the WGA during this whole process. I remember seeing him on CNN and he just took a shit on Bob Iger at one point. It was pretty funny. actually. A lot of them did. Yeah, a lot of them did. And I'm not putting Adam in this bucket, but you wrote about this for what I'm hearing this week. I mean, this lasted 146 days and you had a lot of writers out striking, but also this was like the first strike that unfolded on social media. And you also had a lot of writers who frankly, like don't have really like big careers. And like, Mm -hmm. they just kind of like got a lot of, to repeat the word clout on social media by lashing the big streamers and saying some really toxic things. Uh, you know, are they, are those types of people going to be able to go back and, you know, kindly work with the, with the studios and showrunners at this point? It's a good question. I think that they probably will. And this is the reason, first of all, the Bob Igers of the world are not the people that are making the decisions on who is hired on which television show or movie. Mm -hmm. Those Mm -hmm. executives are further down the totem pole and for the most part, those executives are on the side of the writers. I mean, they are, that's their entire mm. business is, and their reputation is having relationships with creative people. So it's not like those people were out there trashing the writers, at least not publicly. So I don't mm. think they, they will hold it against them necessarily. Also, the showrunners, the people who actually do the staffing on most TV shows, those people might actually be endeared to the activists on social media and might like them more and might actually have developed a relationship with them during this strike. So while yes, it was a little odd to see these people like that have been trashing the executives and trashing journalists and trashing all these people on social media for five months, all of a sudden like pencils up or, you know, pencils down and we're back. It seems weird. Like there might be repercussions. I just don't know how many there will be. I want to ask you about the actor's strike after the break, but real quick, mm-hmm. and this is related to the actor's strike, how does this impact the production schedules of the shows? Like, you know, and maybe put it in the context of some shows that some of our listeners might might know about. Sure. The writers ending the strike essentially means that 
writing on shows can begin. So the new season of the fall TV season can start being written right now. Uh-huh. There's no actors because SAG-AFTRA is still on strike and those negotiations will probably begin next week. But late night shows, for instance, can go back because their hosts are covered by a different agreement. Mm. And they, yes, they use WGA writers, but the writer strike being over, now those shows can go back into production and we'll see Bill Maher and John Oliver this weekend. We'll see the broadcast guys, the Jimmys, Colbert, Seth Meyers, those guys will go back on Monday. So that's the first thing we'll notice post-strike. As for when production is going to start, I mean, it depends when the actors get a deal done. Mm-hmm. And that could be, I think it's probably going to be a lot easier to get a deal with them than it was with the writers. But best case scenario, we're talking around Thanksgiving. All right, I want to take a quick break, man. When we come back, I want to talk more about the SAG strike. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to the Powers That Be, everybody. I'm talking to Matt Bellany about the strikes in Hollywood. One of them ended the writer's strike. The SAG after strike is still going on. The actors. Matt, you mentioned in what I'm hearing, a kind of not very nice anecdote involving Mira Sorvino, which is related to the SAG strike. Can you can you tell me about that? Yeah, there was this odd situation that played out on Dancing with the Stars. You know, they get stars. So there are some members of the guilds that are on Dancing with the Stars this season. And the Writers Guild was picketing Dancing with the Stars because they had a couple of WGA writers that participated on that show. And obviously, they're not using those writers during the strike. But this is a show that is covered by a separate SAG-AFTRA agreement. So Mm -hmm. SAG actually put out a statement saying they're okay with people like Mira Sorvino or Allison Hannigan or Matt Walsh, the the Veep actor. He had a separate (laughs) issue because he was also a member of the WGA. 
So that was a, a, another thing. But Mira Sorvino got kind of caught up in this because she was participating in the show that her guild told her she could, but the Writers Guild had all these signs and people attacking her on social media. They, yeah. they even invoked her father, Paul Sorvino, who passed away saying that her father would be ashamed of her and embarrassed by her. It was it was an example to me of some of the hyper-aggressive tactics that the Writers Guild has used during the strike mm -hmm. to go after people, and that one didn't sit well with me. It goes to the other question of social media. The leverage in this strike was very much because of the social media activities of the writers. They absolutely mm. galvanized their membership, they prevented any dissenting voices from speaking out. They were out there attacking, shaming. And I do think the studio side really underestimated the social media impact of the strike. And I think it ultimately helped the WGA get a better deal. Yeah, I mean, it had. you also had this like echo effect where this is a labor union on strike on social media, most visibly on Twitter. And that stuff just goes beyond Los Angeles, and you have a lot of politically active people on the internet who are retweeting some of these very angry and toxic tweets. I mean, the megaphones, again, for some writers who might be have long careers, but lots of writers who, <laughs> who don't and suddenly got famous on social media by just being mean and angry. That's a difficult dynamic for sure. Yeah, there's all there's there's always going to be people on social media that kind of want a social justice badge and they will yeah. jump on board. That's sort of how social media works. But I do think that that was something that that both within the guild itself and putting pressure on the studios, it did it did make an impact. Oh, for sure. Uh I want to ask you though why why you think the Screen Actors Guild strike might be resolved at least in your telling rather mm -hmm. rather quickly. Well, I think a lot of the issues that the writers had are similar enough to the SAG issues that they will be able to use as a template the deal points that the writers negotiated. It's not going to be exactly apples to apples, but there was a lot of back-channeling going on between the WGA and SAG-AFTRA during the strike and during the writers' negotiation so that the deal that they ended up on will be able to at least be a precedent. It might not be exactly the same, particularly mm -hmm. on AI where the, the actors have unique concerns about their image and how their persona is used in the future. That's something the writers don't really care about. The big issue actually is a very boring one. The actors are asking for 11% wage increases and the writers only got 5%, same as the mm -hmm. directors. So the studios are going to be loath to give the actors a much bigger raise than they did the others. And we'll see how that plays out. So, Matt, SAG has a strike authorization on video game companies next. What's that about? Yeah, I mean, it's not a strike. It's a, just an authorization, and that's a, an overwhelming vote by the Guild to allow its leadership to call for a strike against video game companies if they can't make a deal. These are voice actors, motion capture actors, stunt actors that appear in video huh. games. They've been negotiating for months. And finally, I think they felt like they had a little bit of leverage here. Finally, they called for a strike authorization to try to get higher wages and better protections against AI. A lot of this, the claims that are similar to the ones being fought against film and television companies, and there is some overlap, like Disney is one of the companies in both of these situations. Then there's others like Epic and Activision, EA. But mm -hmm. we could see another strike in the creative industries pretty soon after these other ones are resolved. 
Well, that means you won't be able to play uh, Baldur's Gate 3 or whatever's coming out next on PlayStation. Sorry, buddy. I, I'll take your word for, for that one. <laughs> I, I just I literally just Googled what is a popular video game. That's not my strike zone. Uh, Matt, thank you so much, man. Good luck out no there. No problem. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.